Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Uh, Perry Marshall here with Mark Chenoweth. And uh, Mark is a gentleman that I got to know through blog comments on the Evolution 2.0 site. And he has written a very interesting paper that I thought, well, this is so interesting. I just think we should have a podcast and talk about it. And um, I don't have a lot of theologians on the Evolution 2.0 channel. Maybe it's because most of the theologians don't seem to be terribly interested in the science stuff. But Mark is very interested in it. And uh, he has an MDiv and a master's in theology from St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary. And just saying Orthodox, like that's a whole, that's like a whole universe that probably sure. most people don't know about. And he's a professor at St. John's University in New York. And um, he's beginning a dissertation on the theology of St. Maximus the Confessor, who figures rather prominently into our conversation today. And so, well, Mark, welcome. Thank you. And Good to so, be here. But before we get into like the real core of it, let's just kind of rewind to the first I recall of you is you started asking questions in the blog. Yeah. About, about, um, you could call it evolution 2.0, you could call it extensive synthesis, you could call it third way evolution, but I, I, I'm pretty sure you pointed out a book called From Logos to Bios. Yeah. And I bought it and you said, hey, Perry, you know, this guy references you quite a bit. You want to, might want to take a look at this. And I've since actually become friends with him, uh, wine into beer. And so... It's like I didn't realize before reading his book how far the ancient Greeks yeah. had, had gotten in their thinking. And like they were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Yep. And there's several interesting rabbit trails I think we can go down here. But I think I've talked enough. And maybe you could kind of backfill a little bit of so how did you stumble into this, and 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 and, and why should anybody care? Uh, eventually, we'll get to why. Why should anybody care what some guy 700 AD was saying about biology? So, sure, uh, give us some backstory here. Uh, well, I mean, I don't remember exactly what caused me to get interested in Evolution 2.0, your book, uh, but for whatever reason, I I. I picked it up and started reading it. And kind of before that, I had always, well, certainly not always, but it was kind of the position I settled into was uh, some sort of evolution occurred and God probably miraculously moved it along from time to time. And 
you know, that was, that was after, of course, I was raised young earth creationist. The earth is 6,000 years old and, and everything. And eventually, yeah. And eventually moved out of that. Um, and that's sort of what I, what I came to. So maybe something like, well, maybe Michael Behe's thing is, is right. Something like that. Yeah. But I was convinced that evolution occurred. Um, and wrote uh, my THM thesis on Maximus's understanding of, of the fall, Maximus the Confessor, and uh, his understanding of the fall and how that might look uh, in light of evolution. Mm-hmm. So while I was doing that, near, near the end, I started reading your book, and it actually distracted me a lot from finishing the thesis <laughs> because it, I was noticing things, but I thought this isn't exactly relevant to what I'm writing about right now. So I, after I finished and, and graduated, uh, that area sort of interested me because it did sort of extend from what I was already doing because I was looking at evolution. And then reading your book, it, it kind of showed me, oh, wow, I, had, I didn't have any idea that any of these mechanisms existed, transposition and uh, epigenetics and all of these, these different things which really surprised me. And I, I thought, well, you know, if these things exist, maybe uh, evolution occurred in more of this way rather than, I mean, certainly God still could have helped it along or whatever, but I think that at least the transition points within the evolutionary process that I looked at before and thought, well, looks like God probably would have had to inter- have intervened at this point because I don't see how the traditional neo-Darwinian mechanisms could make this transition occur. Uh, your book sort of showed me, okay, so there are natural ways for these transitions to occur. And I think through kind of hanging out on your blog and then talking with uh, the people on Josh Swamidas's site um, and looking at sort of the two different opinions on how should modern evolutionary theory be thought of or, or be taught, really, I kind of came about to read all these different uh, articles about it and uh, pretty convinced now I definitely would consider myself a supporter of the extended synthesis. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly because it seems like if we're going to stick with the original neo-Darwinian one, um, the way that that would get talked about in sixth, seventh, eighth grade textbooks, because it's so general, is just going to leave so much stuff out. Uh, Whereas if the extended synthesis were taught, I think those different mechanisms would be more upfront and I would have learned about them, mm-hmm. you know, more as a layperson than having to look at all this scientific literature to, to see if this is what's going on. So there, I think there's, there's two angles you can come at this from. You could come at it from a science angle and uh, you know, there's a lot of people saying, Hey, you, you know, you're never going to have any real adequate understanding of biology if you're stuck in eighth grade textbooks. And, and quite honestly, a lot of modern scientists are still stuck in eighth grade as far as evolution because <laughs> they really think it's that simple. Yeah. And, and I could refer to a book that just came out 
two months ago from a Nobel Prize winner that's pretty much banging that same drum, right? Which is, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why we're not solving cancer and everything else. But then there's a theological aspect. And yeah. let, me just, let me just, for the sake of some listeners who aren't into theology, try to give people just a little bit, bit of background or, or maybe some appreciation. He said, you know, there's a lot of people, they, they think that Adam and Eve story is, is kind of silly and all oh, that's kind of cute and whatever, but we, we know better than that. I'm actually of the opinion that the Adam and Eve story, if you go, what is the purpose of the story? Mm-hmm. Like you really like, or what do we need a story for? Well, if you just need a story for the purpose of a mechanical scientific account, sure, then probably the Adam and Eve story is not terribly useful. But that's not the purpose of the Adam and Eve story in the first place, I don't think. No. The, the, the functional purpose it has in society is to say, hey, everybody, humans have these certain problems and these certain mm-hmm. tendencies and you need, as a human being, you really need to understand what they are, because if you don't, you can make some really tragic mistakes. And so the, the story is saying that humans have some unhealthy ways that we tend to use knowledge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it suggests that men have this funny way of abdicating responsibility to women and letting the women um, get the bad consequences and, the, and then blaming them for it. I mean, if you could just like, you could spend about six weeks unwrapping the layers of this story. And, and, yeah. and the story culturally is actually incredibly powerful. And you really only appreciate this if you've, maybe if you've studied mythology, but even the mythology people don't tend to take it seriously enough. But if you've taken it theology, hopefully maybe you've taken this seriously enough. And so it would it be fair to say, Mark, that you're trying to reconcile two completely different ways of understanding the world and make some sense of them. And this is why you're writing uh, you yeah. know, a thesis and, and so forth, right? Yeah, uh, I think the main reason for this article was sort of to alert scholars in the Orthodox community that there are different things going on in evolutionary biology. Um, and there's, a, there's sort of a different way we can think about evolution that is really consonant with what certainly Maximus the Confessor was doing, but theologians before him as well, um, like Gregory of Nyssa, uh, so around the, the fourth century. And is it also fair to say that Orthodox people are probably more interested in the ancient Greeks than your typical Protestants and oh yeah Catholics? Uh, yeah, probably even Catholics. Yeah, okay, to some extent. Mm-hmm. And it's not appreciated the degree to which the ancient Greeks had thought about this stuff in very sophisticated ways. And the degree to which um, in the last couple of hundred years, uh, a lot of people have thrown the ancient Greeks in the dumpster. Right. And so I just thought today would be a great opportunity for you to unpack some of that. So you can start wherever you want. You start with Greece. You want to start with 
uh, Maximus or wherever, but maybe at least we put a little context around this. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I was like you surprised at a lot of the stuff that Wine and De Beer brought up in his, in his book from Logos to Bios, as far mm -hmm. as there were sort of kind of predecessors to our modern understanding of evolution in these ancient Greeks. I mean, uh, who does he, I mean, he talks about one guy, what's his, uh, and Anaximander. I mean, he, you know, a lot of this sounds kind of mythological as far as uh, held that life originated from heated water and earth, which gave rise to fish-like beings. And then inside of these fish-like beings grew embryos until they reached puberty eventually this kind of gave rise to humanity. I mean, it kind of sounds like evolution. Well, it, 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 it does. It, if you give them some wide berth, certainly it does. Yeah, I think that, like you were saying, there's we're not giving enough credit to the ancient Greeks. And even with someone like Gregory of Nyssa, I've talked about this with, well, okay. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can say that there, I'm not alone in this. Gregory of Nyssa's On the Making of Man, or On the Making of Humanity, he talks about things in, in a way that makes really makes you wonder, did he have some sort of concept of evolution in mind here? Because uh, I can read you like a, a passage, but I, I was talking with a friend about this because um, he was in a seminar on Gregory of Nyssa, and uh, the, the guy running it... Um, Father John Bear read a particular passage and then asked the class, can you see anything in this that doesn't sound like evolution to you? And, <laughs> and he said the class just remained silent, which often happens and no one really objected. And I, I, you can definitely see that. And this is and, 1600 years old, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the things that he brings up in On the Making of Humanity is, you know, why was hum humanity created last? And mm. the way that he talks about it, so for example, yeah, is that, that man includes uh, in himself, in a way, sort of all the, the forms that came before him. So I'll just read like a section here. If therefore scripture tells us that man was made last after every animate thing, the lawgiver is doing nothing else than declaring to us the doctrine of the soul, considering that what is perfect comes last, according to a certain necessary sequence in the order of things. For in the rational are included the others also, while in the sensitive uh, there also exists the vegetative form. So one form sort of exists in this later form that comes along, and then he says, and that again is conceived only in connection with what is material. Thus, we may suppose that nature, he doesn't mention um, God just creating everything out of nothing, one step to another. He says nature. We may suppose that nature makes an ascent, as it were, by steps. I mean, the various properties of life from lower to the perfect form. Uh, so all the forms of life were included in what came later. So humanity, for Gregory and definitely for Maximus, contains within itself everything that came before it. 
which to me sounds a lot like evolution. So guess what? Your mitochondria are actually bacteria. So, right? Yeah. This this is pretty, yeah. So uh, Gregory of Nyssa, developer of the first theory of evolution in (laughs) It's good. It's only a couple paragraphs, but yeah, I mean, if, if anyone's interested, I think I can tell them the, the section here because you can always pull it up. I think it's what section eight of of uh, on the making of man, which if you type that in on Google, it'll, it'll come right up. Well, so which, yeah. which brings us to you really felt like there was something to in, unpack when you got to Maximus the Confessor. So t- tell everyone, yeah. you know, give, give a little background about, you know, so who are these people? Well, Maximus the Confessor, his name is the Confessor because within Orthodoxy and Catholicism, um, but I don't think that most Protestants would object, um, certainly Anglicans wouldn't, to the idea of, of the, there's sort of seven ecumenical councils, uh, the last one being in 787, that the church adheres to, uh, the dogmatic proclamations of those councils. And Maximus the Confessor, was sort of the hero of the sixth council. And that was because um, for some of your listeners, it might sound like who cares, but uh, he originally got in trouble, got his tongue cut out and everything for confessing that Christ didn't have one will. He had two wills, uh, a divine and human will, which to the, the mind of the church eventually um, meant that this is the way that we preserve uh, the right understanding of, of how God became a human being, that Christ was human and divine and had a human will and a divine will at the same time. That's kind of what he's most famous for in the church. Uh, he wrote a, a heck of a lot of stuff and drew in, I mean, obviously he drew in uh things from, from Gregory of Nyssa and uh, Gregory's brother, Basil, and everyone that came before him, but a lot of uh, Platonic stuff and Neoplatonic stuff and Aristotelian stuff. And uh, what everyone talks about a lot is uh, Maximus and the Logi. So what the heck is or Maximus's idea of the, the Logi or, or L-O-G-O-I, really, you can... and what does his conception of, of the Logi have to do with evolution? I focused a, a lot on that in the article. And basically, the Logi can kind of be thought of as similar to Plato's forms. If any of your listeners are, are, are familiar with that at all, sort of abstract objects in a way um, that exist in the mind of God. This is not Logos. Well, the Logos is, is Christ. But uh, yeah, the, the Logi are just L-O-G-O-I, like the plural of Logos. Um, so there's a lot of them. Well, okay. Okay. So, but we need to explain Logos. So yeah. Christians would understand probably Logos. You know, Logos is the Greek word for logic and for word. And mm-hmm. And John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. So it says Logos uh, started from the beginning. But in Greek thought, which goes back 500 years before that, 
um, the Greeks had come to the conclusion that words and ideas and forms preceded the physical. Yep. Yep. And so when John said in the beginning was the word and word was with God and the word was God and the word dwelt among us, he was saying, hey, you know that Greek thing that it was like the the mathematical architecture of of everything before you had physical forms. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. well, that thing actually is a person has a name and we met him, right? Which was a profound, it was like an explosively profound theological idea. Yeah. Okay. And so so that's that's the background. So now when he says logi, he's saying the little reflections of the original power of speech and power of ideas and power of logic that are scattered all over the world. Is it something? Like something like that? Yeah. Yeah. If you think of everything that exists, he says that for, you know, all the creatures that exist were preceded by a logos. Um, so there's a logos of angels. There's a logos of, of human beings. So there, it's kind of like the, the essence of what something is. And they sort of, they exist in, in God's mind before he creates like it's, it's like saying before you could have a cardboard box mm -hmm. you have to have the idea of a square yeah exactly yeah. which is true by the way like if you parse it out um, yeah there has to be a logic that makes the universe work and for matter and atoms and everything there has to be a logic before the matter can embody the logic yes Okay, and this is rigorously logical. You can you can go very deep into the thought about this, and they're right, mm -hmm. right? And then you get to the 21st century, and you're like, yeah, well, so yeah, how come all those um, planets follow these perfectly mathematical orbits, and you know why does math so perfectly describe the universe? The the, the, the Greeks were onto this, sure, a long time ago. Yeah, and I like a. I think the analogy that Aristotle used a lot like what you were saying is that uh, before, I don't know, some uh, uh, an artist makes uh, a creation, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a statue or something, the statue has to exist in their mind, first of all, and then they go about chipping out the block until they see what existed uh, in their mind. And so... Yeah, the, the, the form precedes what eventually embodies that form. And in my article, I, I talk about how we see these Aristotelian essences, um, the essence of what, what it is to be a thing, and like the platonic forms are being used by some uh, prominent evolutionary biologists to help them sort of make sense out of out of what's going on in evolution so uh who's i think i quote um simon conway morris where he's talking about consciousness possibly preceding matter evolution he says suppose mind is not only independent but also pre-existent to matter if that was the case then evolution is simply the process to discover mind. So evolution discovers what was already there. Basically. If we concede that what we perceive, at least at the moment, is not all there is, 
that there are deeper structures within the universe, then we might make some progress. That animal cognition has begun to tap these platonic worlds is consistent with such a view. So Simon Conway Morris, a, a really prominent evolutionary biologist using Plato to help bring out the significance of what he thinks is going on in evolution. And I saw what he was doing there and thought, well, this sounds a heck of a lot like uh, Maximus's Logi, that a Logi preceded every uh, created thing that comes into being. And so this is not an abstruse idea because DNA codes for protein, which yeah. means that a there you go. DNA contains an idea before the physical thing is built. And that idea is essential to heredity. Okay, so yeah. this is hardly some ivory tower philosophical concept. We, we have to have this in order for genetics to work. Yeah. And so basically just he, he marries Plato and, and Darwin. I mean, he says, I am transported. This is him again. I am transported to a Darien peak, a vast prospect where one might almost imagine two figures ascending from opposite directions, then greeting each other. Plato and Darwin embrace. So mm. I read that and thought, well, what if we just move up uh, some centuries to Maximus and, and say kind of the same thing here? So I liken evolution to maybe you could start off with one giant car that sort of divides into multiple cars and they, you know, they start off at um, they're going from South to North or something from here to up here. And um, they all go along roads and have landmarks and those landmarks would, would sort of represent the Logie. They, they hit the landmarks, but the landmarks pre-exist the car coming up to the landmark in the same way that human beings or lions or whatever you can think of preceded the creation of human beings or lions, the, the idea of them. And evolution just realizes these particular ideas in time, if that makes sense. Well, so if you, you think about, uh, you got a bacteria in a Petri dish and they're threatened through starvation or predators or whatever else, mm -hmm. they will start mutating. And yes. uh, the, the mutation array to go up by a factor of 100,000 and they are trying stuff. And they don't know what's going to work, but it's clear that they're not just trying anything. They're trying permutations of something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Barbara McClintock famously said, what does a cell know about itself? And she put that question in her Nobel Prize paper. And you can't really say that you can be sure that they don't know what they're doing. It's really not clear what they know. Yeah. But they know something, right? Yeah. And so it's the idea precedes embodiment. And there, there's a lot of ways to describe that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can try to wriggle out of it, but no, really, no matter what kind of explanation you have, you end up with that there's 
a rule before the matter can obey the rule. Yeah. And so there's an abstract thing going on that precedes matter. And in, in the this Conway Morris book that you read is saying, well, what if we've got this backwards? What what if instead of matter eventually finding its way to mind, what if mind is searching for something by rearranging matter? Which mm-hmm. I think it actually makes much more sense yeah. uh, from an engineering point of view. So the fact that these ideas keep coming back reinforces the notion that they're probably right. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. So that was kind of one big part of the article that because people like Simon Conway Morris and, and others see evolution as being relatively predictable, it definitely makes sense to see a logos or an essence sort of preceding what comes about in the evolutionary process that they weren't, they're just not completely random. I mean, I don't want to. Well, why don't you take a minute and explain Simon Conway Morris's concept of convergence? Yeah. So, I mean, he would say that there's multiple evolutionary lineages that have sort of stumbled upon the same solutions to problems that arise in the evolutionary process. And I tried to find the most prominent examples. I mean, as far as eyes, I think, yeah. It appears the eye has evolved six or eight times. Well, he says the two most prevalent types of eyes, camera eyes and compound eyes altogether have evolved separately on more than 40 occasions. Oh, wow. So the fact that they've evolved separately in separate evolutionary lineages, putting this with Maximus's understanding of the Logi, I think it tends to make good sense out of what's going on there. And the same thing for not just eyes, but, but animals themselves. So there's a marsupial lion, cat, wolf, mole, anteater, jerboa, flying squirrel. So there's a parallel evolution going on between the mammals of South America and Australia. You have the same animals in separate evolutionary lineages coming about both times. Lion, cat, wolf, mole, anteater, jaboa, flying squirrel in separate evolutionary lineages. And so I would say that if that's what's going on, then there's a logos of lion that pre-exists in God's mind the evolutionary realization of the lion in the same way for all those other animals as well. You know, a comparable idea would be, I've been in and out of automotive plants in all kinds of places, and virtually all cars are built the same way. Mm-hmm. And they have the same components, whether it's a Porsche or a Ford Fiesta or anything between you know, there's a chassis and there's four wheels, you know, and there's slight variations on how it's done, but there's a remarkable similarity, right? And then if you just think about how things get designed, it's like, well, you know, are we going to have two wheels, three wheels, four wheels, five wheels? If we're going to have four, where are the wheels going to be? If the four wheels are going to be where they are, then how are we going to connect them together? And you just start falling into these 
certain constraints that happen naturally. Yep. And what the Greeks and what some of these theologians are saying is that the forms, like the abstract forms pre-exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the possibility of four, a car with four wheels uh, exists conceptually before it exists in person. And if you're trying things out with a goal in mind, then there, there's almost like a conceptual toolbox that you're going to have, and you're going to have numbers, and you're going to have integers, and you're going to have straight lines, and you're going to have squares, and you're going to have circles. And so Simon Conway Morris, who observes that over and over, you, you see you see things that are completely physically disconnected to each other appearing and taking the same form. Well, that must mean that we need to think about the forms rather than thinking about the matter. Yeah. Which, um, now there's a lot of people that don't like this because they adhere to a completely materialistic worldview. Right. Right, which sits uncomfortably with the idea that we actually discover mathematics rather than just making it up. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? And so what we're really talking about today in this conversation is a battle between two worldviews that's been going on for as long as humans can remember. Yeah. This is not new. And these questions are not new. And the ideas are not new. Yeah, I mean, I, with uh, Anaximander, I mean, any yep. of the of those Greek guys that had some sort of quasi evolution that they thought might have occurred for him. Um, I mean, De Beer said that it was still directed, but I mean, the Epicureans, on the other hand, kind of had what would be akin to sort of a more neo-Darwinian understanding today of just, they had an understanding of evolution, but stuff just kind of happened randomly. And I think that, I mean, what I've read from Gregory of Nyssa earlier might've been some sort of response in his own mind of, well, I don't agree with uh, their understanding of, of how the world developed, um, but not necessarily a, a refutation of, of the idea that there was development that happened. It was just directed in some way. And I do say that I, I'm not uh, advocating for intelligent design in the article, but well, I mean, I can talk a little bit about what, what I mean by uh, direction. Well, yes. Or, well, in your paper, you're trying to, clear some space for uh, looking at design in the universe at possible different levels instead of just being, you know, God beaming zebras onto the savannah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you're, you're saying, well, you know, maybe instead of design being this retail thing, maybe design is this wholesale thing. Isn't that something like where you're going with this? Yeah. And I think you've mentioned it before. I do think that science can say a little bit about teleology in the same way that you've mentioned and, and, and Dennis Noble wrote of what is it? I think he calls it natural purposiveness, that we're not appealing to intelligent design when we say that the purpose of a, of a heart is to pump blood. 
Right. That's kind of what he means um, by a natural teleology within nature itself that that's perfectly acceptable uh, for any scientist to talk about. That's, I think, as far as, as I would go, as far as I understand you, maybe as far as you would go, as far as, you know, here's what scientists should be talking about. But I would say that the, the theologian or the philosopher can um, go much further than that and contemplate, you know, what does the convergence that we see in evolution actually mean, which to me is a, is a theological question. It's a philosophical question and not necessarily a scientific one. Well, science doesn't have very good tools for dealing with meaning. Yep. In the in the psychological sense. Yeah. Uh, science is really good at answering is questions. It's not very good at answering why questions. Yes. Especially when they start having layers and layers of of nuance. You know, you can look at a a human being from a sociology point of view, a psychology point of view. You could look at them from an internal medicine point of view. You can look at them from a physics point of view. And all of those points of view is correct. But if you want to connect all the dots from sociology down to physics, good luck. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, you won't even get started. We, we could be 100,000 years from being able to do that. Yeah. And philosophy is really a field where you're free to jump between all those levels yeah. and ask, well, how should we think about thinking? Yeah, I think uh, Alvin Planning has said philosophy is just thinking really hard about stuff. Yes, yes. Oh, all right. Also, to your credit, the more a philosopher knows about all kinds of different fields, the much better equipped they are. You know, a philosopher who only knows philosophy, uh, his very first day in a science class, may be at a considerable disadvantage. Sure. Right? But you're like, well, okay, I'm going to dive into this literature. I mean, now how many books and papers and whatever else have you, you've gone down biology and now all of a sudden you have a vocabulary for a bunch of things. Yeah. That, that a lot of your colleagues don't even think about. Yeah, so hopefully, um, well, I mean, things are uh, good right now, I think. Just uh, our St. Vladimir's Seminary Press just released a book, and I actually, I got an email from the, the author saying that it seems like my article and his book sort of come to the same conclusion, and they just released a book on, uh, I think it's, I forget the exact title, Science and Christian faith or something. And he, he kind of says kind of the same things that I'm, that I'm getting at. So why don't, why well, so. what, what are some of the conclusions that you came to? Well, I didn't really talk yet about how I would see, and certainly Maximus would see Christ as, uh, and this is of course, this is theology. This isn't science, but it's certainly consistent with what we see in science that Maximus would see Christ as the, uh, the pinnacle certainly of all creation. And, you know, now that we know about evolution could say that, that Christ is the perfect human being that evolution was sort of 
always striving towards from the beginning. And that when I say striving towards, that sort of picks up on what we've been talking about is there does seem to be uh, a direction involved in the evolutionary process. What is it ultimately headed towards? And that's where I bring in theology and say, well, Paul uh, in Ephesians talks about Christ recapitulating all of creation in himself. And Maximus loves that and uses that as well because he sees Christ as the true human being who did what we were supposed to do and says that humanity is, is a workshop containing all things. And because we contain all things and Christ was, was human, he contained all things in the same way that we contain all things from an evolutionary point of view through common ancestry. Oh, okay. So it's like there's an end point, an ideal, and mm-hmm. that contains all possi- future possibilities. And then there's a where we came from, which, you know, soil and bacteria and all these other things. And it's like we're, we're at this midpoint between, um, you know, we, we've carried along what, what we've accumulated from the past, but we're, we're headed in a particular direction. Yeah. Uh, and midpoint is a great word. That's what Maximus says about what the human being is. Um, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's the human being is a midpoint between the created and, and the uncreated world. And we were supposed to unite. This is sort of how he understands the falls that we were supposed to unite created nature to uncreated nature. And we failed, but Christ succeeded. And the reason that we can do that is because we contain all things that came before us. So we bring all of nature into union uh, with the divine life because we contain all of what came before us, all of the evolutionary process. And that's what Christ does and will do in the, the eschaton, you know, at, at his return and, and the resurrection. So let's talk about the fall. Mm-hmm. So uh, some Christians are very obsessed with the fall. Eviate the apple and screwed us all up and everything's been bad ever since. And then some people think that sounds kind of strange. Mm-hmm. But... You know, the funny thing about human beings is that we have all of these problems and we know that they're problems. So, like, if you just took a completely materialistic Darwinian view of the world, why would you particularly have a problem with racism? Mm -hmm. That's not a trivial statement because Origin of Species by Charles Darwin is actually a pretty racist book. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised it hasn't, you know, gotten culture canceled or something uh, by now. But, but like we we know that we fall short of some thing that we grasp at. And, yeah. And so, like whether whether you put this in religious terminology or not, we all know there's something screwed up about us. Right. 
<laughs> That's pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> so what does Maximus the Confessor tell us about the fall that might help modern people have a more useful understanding of what ails us? I think drawing from, from Maximus and from Gregory of Nyssa, as well as from some others, I've, I've kind of come to understand the fall. And I mean, I think one way you could put it in a way that is almost in secular language is that we were supposed to overcome the evolutionary drives that were in us from, you know, our, our, our predecessors um, because they don't, they don't work very well for, for human beings. So, I mean, that's why there's a lot of people that are, that are overweight. You know, there's so much that we have access to now and even to some extent, I mean, at their time, that's more than, you know, what uh, a chimpanzee had, had access to that we overindulge. You know, our job was supposed to be to obviously not overindulge. And, you know, that's sort of one thing that you're not supposed to do, but then uh, use the image of God in us to, and be priests of all of creation to bring that into unity with God. And we didn't do that. We sort of went back to what our ancestors had been like. And they, you know, use the phrase a lot. They, you know, they became more beast-like or, or bestial. Um, yes. Right. If you go to a funeral of a great person, all of the eulogies are about how non-Darwinian this person was. Right. Right. Yeah. It's not about, it's not about how he, well, you know, he produced 84 offspring from 17 different <laughs> women and he consumed all the resources and he was basically like Genghis Khan. Like you have to stop and think about it. Like what this is really saying is what got us here won't get us there. And we have this sense of there mm -hmm. that totally like, where did we even get these ideas? Right. Yeah which goes back to the beginning of our conversation where I said, well, why, why do we need an Adam and Eve story? Well, if you're trying to tell humans what they should be like, the Adam and Eve story is way more helpful than the Darwin story. Because mm -hmm. the sure. Darwin story only tells you where you came from. Right. We don't want to anybody to be acting like chimpanzees. The Darwin story doesn't tell you anything about what we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And then yeah. I don't think it gets articulated very well many times, but this is what people are sort of primally recoiling against when they don't like evolution, they don't like Darwinism, they don't like the secular worldview. They're not usually very good at saying it, but it's like, well, I don't want to be reduced to that, and I don't want my kids to be reduced to that. And I don't, you might think you've got proof for it, but I don't like it, and I'm not going to believe it. Yeah. And I think you're trying to say, well, we go to the Greeks, we can go to Nysa, we can go to uh, Maximus, and we can find echoes of these, like the tension between these two worlds. 
and all of these people have been wrestling with it and they mm -hmm. sometimes did a better job than the modern people are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Maximus has a couple places where he does seem to talk about Adam enjoying like an, a, a sustained absolute perfection, but for the most part, most of the, the Greek fathers tended to think of Adam and Eve being sort of immature and innocent um, and certainly not reached the full potential of, of what humanity was supposed to be. And so, I mean, Maximus has this phrase that he says a number of different times throughout his writings that the first man fell together with his coming into being, hmm. which obviously means he doesn't, he didn't interpret the story literally, but mm. Uh, mm. I mean, there's a number of different reasons he says that probably don't concern us right now, but yeah, I mean, for him, we had this potential that we were supposed to reach and we immediately spurned it. And that, I think that makes sense within an evolutionary perspective that immediately there is a great pull down from below to just sort of go to the things that are below us, the, the animal like things that our ancestors had done and we got sucked in immediately. So you have written this paper. It is called a Maximian Framework for Understanding Evolution. And uh, people can search for this online, right? We can put links in the show notes. Yeah, my academia.edu page. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Mark, it's been great talking to you. And it's good to know that these questions are not new. No, not at all. <laughs> So um, it, 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 it validates how important they are, actually, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. well, thank you for being on today. And it's Thanks for having me. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. 